called this series, Final Words for Following Jesus. And Jesus, in this whole time, has been preparing his disciples for his death. He knows he's going to die. He knows he's going to give his life for our sins. So he's been preparing them for that event. He wants to, one of the big things he wants them to understand is, this is going to look like defeat, but it's actually victory. Me dying is actually how I'm winning you know, the, the biggest battle in all of history. And so he wants them to see it as victory, not defeat. Um, and often when we do uh, songs during this time, uh, we can have songs that make us focus on kind of like the sadness and the sorrow of the event. Um, today we're doing songs that more focus on the victory of the event and why we should be excited, not you know, that Jesus died, but that he died for us. It's an expression of his love and that accomplished this great victory. And as I said, on our calendars today begins what we call Holy Week, and today is Palm Sunday, um, and Jesus, 2,000 years ago, came into Jerusalem, and he had this big group of followers with him, and they were traveling to Jerusalem, like many others were, for the Jewish festival of Passover, and Passover would last a whole week. It didn't start on this Sunday, it would start on Thursday night. Um, but they were coming into town, and as Jesus comes into town, there's all these people that are super excited about him. They're like, we think this is the Messiah. We think this is the king that God promised to send us, the king who would come and save us from all of our enemies. And so people, as they've come, have picked up these, these palm branches. It's called Palm Sunday because people picked palm branches. As Jesus is coming to Jerusalem, they're laying them like, at his feet. Uh, he's riding on a donkey, but they're laying him in front of him. It's almost like this royal red carpet entrance into Jerusalem. The king has come. Let's give him this royal red carpet entrance. And they, they're thinking um, that he's come to fulfill all that God had promised. Because centuries and centuries and centuries ago, this guy named Moses, God had called him and said, I want you to lead my people out of slavery. I want you to lead them in an exodus out of slavery, out of these foreign oppressors, the Egyptians who have... The, push my people down. And so they're thinking, one day God's going to send another person like that. God's going to call another person to come and lead us out of slavery, to lead us out of foreign oppression. And right now, the Roman Empire are the ones oppressing him. And so they're thinking, Jesus has come to do that. And so they're giving him this welcome into Jerusalem. And throughout his week in Jerusalem, Jesus continued to teach people about the kingdom of God. And he uh, confronted the hypocrisy and the corruption that was going on in the temple sacrifice and worship system with the religious leaders. And Thursday is when the Passover festival started. And everything we've covered up to this point in John 13 um, to 17 was all happening on that Thursday night. Jesus comes in on Sunday. Um, Thursday night they celebrate the Passover. And everything that we've been covering has been happening on that night. <clears throat> the festival starts with this meal of a lamb on, a thir on Thursday night. Because on the night of Passover, thousands of years ago, God said, I want you to kill a spotless lamb, smear its blood on your doorpost, and that will protect you from death. And so... For thousands of years after that, and even still today, Jews would sacrifice a lamb, and they I don't, I don't think they still smear the blood, but they have this, maybe, actually they don't sacrifice a lamb either. <laughs> Probably a lot of them just have a meal of lamb and some other things too. Some of them may still do some of that tradition, but remembering this time when God saved them from death. And by that Thursday evening, Jesus knew that his hour had come. He knew that Satan, the ruler of this world, had the pieces in place to have him arrested to, uh, to have him executed. And in John 18, that, we're that uh, Jessica just read a part of, only a few hours have passed since Jesus washed his disciples' feet back in John 13 and ate the Passover meal with them. And in John 18, they've moved from Jerusalem, the capital city, to they go over this little valley, over this little brook, and they go to a grove of olive trees, which they call a garden, over kind of outside of the city. 
And it's there uh, that Judas Iscariot um, betrays Jesus. He, Jesus. It says Jesus went there a lot of times. And so Judas Iscariot is like, I know just where he's going to be. And so he leads this group of officials of the religious leaders um, and some Roman guards out to arrest Jesus. And a storm had been brewing all week, and now the clouds finally let loose. And during the Passover meal, Judas left to betray Jesus. And as Jesus prayed in that garden with his 11 disciples who remained, Judas approaches. Jesus asks, whom do you seek? They say, Jesus of Nazareth. He responds with two words in the original language, I am, or ego a me, in the Greek. And when God told Moses, I want you to leave my people out of slavery, he said, who should I tell them is sending me? And he says, I am. Tell them I am sent you. Jesus takes upon his lips these two words, and those who know in, that, in the group coming to arrest him, who know the Old Testament, they kind of are taken aback, and it says they fall back and like tripped over themselves. Um, and he asks again, who do you seek? And then they arrest him. And Jesus has warned his disciples that this moment would come, and Peter said, I will stand with you till the end. I will go with you even to death. And Peter at this moment, perhaps thinks, this is my moment when I need to stand with Jesus, when I need to prove my loyalty to him. And so he draws his sword, attacks, he cuts this guy's ears off, ear off, which is, I mean, when you think about all this, it's interesting to even consider it would be made up, because why would you put in parentheses in verse 10, who, by the way, the servant's name was Malchus. You can go talk to him if you want to. Go talk to him that he got his ear cut off. And so Peter draws his sword, but then Jesus puts an end to it and says, shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? In other words, shall I not go to my death to fulfill God's plan? And Jesus knows why he's been sent. It's because from the beginning of John's gospel, John the Baptist said, um, Look, the Lamb of God sent to take away the sins of the world. Jesus has come to die the death we all deserve so we can be reconnected with God. As we go through this passage and consider its meaning, we're going to come back to this big idea over and over again. I don't have a whiteboard to hook it onto, but if you like notes... Um, Jesus is the king we all need to reconnect us with the God we've all rejected. Jesus is the king we all need to reconnect us with the God we've all rejected. And Jesus, in this whole narrative, it's showing um, this, this truth that I'm the king. I'm the king you all need. And what I'm doing here, what I'm about to do, my death, looks like a defeat, but it's victory because it's a victory in that I'm being the Lamb of God to die for the sins of the world to reconnect you with the God that you've all rejected. And there's these two things going on here. Jesus is both revealing who he is, the truth about who he is, and he's revealing just how desperately dark and in need of him the world is. And so there's two things going on. He's the king we all need to reconnect us with the God we've all rejected. And the most dangerous thing for us to do as we go through this, it's easy to just demonize these characters and be like, well, they're all just horrible. Like, all these people did horrible things. And the most dangerous thing for us to do is to believe that we are nothing like these people in this story. The most dangerous thing for us to think is, oh, I'd never do that. If I were there, I would have acted completely different. If I was there, I wouldn't have been a dummy like Peter and brought my sword on. If I was there, I wouldn't have done this or that. If I was there, I'd have been completely faithful to Jesus. If I was there, I would have seen, understood everything that was going on in this moment. And this takes us in a I'm better than them direction. For every one of us who's trusted in Jesus was once a part of the world that opposes and resists and rejects God's authority. And these scenes offer us a diagnosis. They're, they offer us a diagnosis of where our hearts naturally go without Jesus. And a diagnosis tells us a problem so that we can get a cure. And Jesus, is in, with his presence, he both is the cure and he's diagnosing. He's light. 
that is shining on the problem, but is also offering the solution to the problem. And think of how ridiculous it would sound to walk into your doctor's office and say to them, you know, while I was sitting in the waiting room, I noticed a lot of people who really need your help, who are really sick, really messed up, they look horrible. Um, I'm really glad they're here at this thing. And then you come to the doctor's office and you tell them that, and I'm, I don't really need you to check me out because I know I'm good. Like it just, it sounds ridiculous. And so we don't want to do that with this narrative. Be like, look at all these people. Look how much, how bad they are and how much they need God. And then we sit in judgment on them rather than be coming into the doctor's office to receive a diagnosis and to receive the cure for ourselves. We need to let Scripture and the Spirit look us over. We need to allow God to examine our hearts to see if there's a problem. And in this scene in the garden, the person who's kind of in the spotlight, I mean, Jesus is always in the spotlight, the, the person that we might be like, at, uh, is Judas, who betrays Jesus. And he spent three years at Jesus' side, hearing his teaching, seeing his miracles, watching him stand up for the weak and needy, and offering good news to all. And Judas stands in the garden to betray Jesus with clean feet, because just hours before this moment, Jesus showed his love for Judas by taking off his outer garments and washing the grime and dirt off of Judas' feet. And we may look at Judas and say, how could you? And we think that if we had spent three years with Jesus and saw and heard everything that Judas saw, that we would never, ever, ever betray Jesus. And on one level, we'll never be in the position of Judas to betray the Son of God, come in the flesh, and hand him over to these religious authorities. We'll never do that. There's a, it's a... Uh, one-time act in history. And yet, if we define betrayal, to betray someone is to be disloyal to them. Or you could say to betray someone is to align yourself with that person's enemies and work against them. So betraying someone is they think you're on their side, but then you align yourself with their enemies and work against them. And that's what Judas does. He is disloyal to Jesus. And he aligns himself with Satan, the ruler of this world, who doesn't want God in this world. And Jesus is God in the flesh and doesn't want him in this world. And if you've trusted in Jesus, you were once a betrayer. And we were made to love God and live for his purposes, but each of us has betrayed him. We aligned ourselves with the ruler of this world. We followed the way of Satan, the way of the ancient serpent, and we lived for his purposes. We were disloyal to the one who created us. We betrayed him. But Jesus died for those who betrayed God. He paid our penalty of betrayal and treason. And the, the good news is that each one of us, if we trust in Jesus, have been rescued by the one that we betrayed. That's the love of God. That God loves his enemies. We've been rescued by the one that we betrayed. Jesus died the death of one who betrayed God, even though he was nothing but loyal to God. And Jesus shows his alignment with God's will when he asked Peter, Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Jesus submits to God's plan and God's will no matter what. So something to think about, even after we've been rescued by Jesus, we still have moments where we align ourselves with the world rather than Jesus. We can find ourselves living counter to God's purposes or God's purposes in somebody else's life, rejecting his authority and plan over us. So take some time either silently or write it down to reflect on this question. How are you working against God's will for your life other people's lives. I mean, you could sum it all up as like, who am I not loving that God has called me to love? That's working against God's purposes. How are you working against God's will for your life or other people's lives?
hopefully the Spirit can guide each of us to hear a diagnosis. Um, but it's not that we stay in the diagnosis, you know, like you're screwed, uh, you're a really bad person. The diagnosis is so that we can come to the cure, because you never look for a cure um, unless you think something's wrong. And so the good news is this, Jesus is the king we all need to reconnect us with the God we've all betrayed. And so as we go through this, we're going to change that last word, rejected. Jesus is the king we all need to reconnect us with the God we've all betrayed. Jesus died for betrayers. And so the song we're going to sing now, I invite Christian and Josue to come up. Um, they're going to lead us in uh, How Great Is Our God, uh, which is number 12. If you want to grab it. So from the Garden of Olive Trees, Jesus is first led to Annas, who was formerly the high priest. Um, but even though he's no longer the high priest, he's consulted um, because he has a lot of influence. And Jesus is brought to Annas' house to be questioned about his disciples in his teaching, we're told. And the goal they have is to bring charges against Jesus. And Jesus replies, I've spoken openly in both the local synagogue, the Jerusalem temple, anywhere I've taught. It's always been in the open. You, you can ask anybody who's listened to me. There's nothing you know, weird and secretive going on here. And of course he had off, uh, kind of, I don't know what you call it, off the record conversations with his disciples where they would ask follow-up questions. But everything, uh, everything that he's about has been open in public, nothing's been done in secret. And at this, one of the officers of the high priest struck Jesus, saying, Is that how you answer the high priest? But Jesus holds hold his ground. If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But what if I said if what I've said is right, why do you strike me? And this is a, a rigged trial. They aren't looking to determine whether Jesus is guilty or innocent. They've already decided what they want to do him with, they charge him with, it's guilty. That's why they've arrested him at night in secret. That's why they're holding these proceedings in the middle of the night, the, the wee hours of the morning. Uh, and that's why they strike him when he doesn't answer how they want him to. And after this, after he's at Annas' house being questioned there, then they send him to Caiaphas, who actually is serving as the high priest that year. And Annas, he can't make an official judgment. The current high priest must. So he's the current high priest, Caiaphas, is the chairman of what's called the Sanhedrin, which is like this religious council um, that oversees... Uh, I guess Israel's spiritual life and the temple worship and all that stuff. So I send him to Caiaphas, who's the chairman of that group. And all the while Jesus is being questioned, Peter is also being questioned. But Peter doesn't hold up as well. John, Jesus' disciple who wrote this gospel, um, was known by the high priest, so he's able to gain entrance. There'd be the house and there's kind of like this courtyard. And so John's able to go in and Peter doesn't, isn't known by the people, the guards at the door. And so he... John talks to the guard and lets Peter in. As he's going in, the servant girl who's guarding the door is like, aren't you one of his disciples? Peter says, no, 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 I'm not. I'm not one of his disciples. She knows John is a disciple. Now she wants to know if Peter is. He says, I'm not. In the courtyard of Annas' house, the servants and the officers of the priests um, who came and arrested Jesus make this fire, and they're warming themselves. And so Peter goes to the fire, and he's standing around it too, warming himself. And then at some point in the light, they, they see his face, and these people that uh, have been watching Jesus uh, with his disciples tre trek around in Jerusalem. And so they've gotten familiar with the faces that are kind of hanging around. And they're like, aren't you one of his disciples too? They see his face and recognize him. He says, no, I'm not. And then another servant, a relative of the man, Malchus, uh, whose ear Peter cut off, um, she says to him, weren't you in the, weren't you in the garden um, with him when everyone came to arrest him? She apparently was there. And then Peter again denied it, and the rooster crowed. Peter had three opportunities to identify with Jesus. Three opportunities to say, yes, I am one of his disciples. And at this point, 
Peter probably doesn't even know what's going to happen to Jesus. Jesus has been arrested. Um, and he's being questioned by the high priest, but there's, he probably doesn't even know what's happening. But even at this point, Peter's not willing to say, I want to connect my future, I want to connect my destiny or whatever which, with whatever's happening to Jesus. Because it's like, okay, he's being questioned. I don't, don't know the outcome of that. I mean, it could be positive for all he knows, but he's not willing to place his, stake his claim and say, yes, I'm with Jesus, whatever happens to him, like, I'll you know, take whatever you bring at me. And perhaps those words spoken earlier by Jesus that evening are still ringing in his ears when Jesus said, If the world hates you, know that it's hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. The hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he's offering service to God. And Jesus spoke of laying down his life. Jesus spoke of being betrayed. Jesus spoke of being hated. Jesus spoke of being persecuted. And there had certainly been some conflict with the religious leaders up to this point. Um, but so far, I mean, following Jesus has probably been pretty exciting for Peter. It was easy to follow someone that the crowds flocked to in order to, to hear his teaching and receive his healing. It was easy to follow someone riding into Jerusalem with a royal welcome. It was easy to say, yes, I'm one of his disciples with confidence and a sense of satisfaction that you're part of the inner circle when everybody likes Jesus. And there's just these few other people that are, you know, kind of like off to the side saying, like, we don't know about this, but look at all the stuff happening. Like, that was when it was easy. He was willing to be around Jesus, associated with Jesus. That was when it was easy. But now things have gotten ugly. And the hate of the world is revealed. And the world's rejection of and rebellion against God is fully brought to light. And the, the world is run by the ultimate betrayer, Satan. And all who follow him are against God. And when the world hates the one you call king, will you, say, will you still say, yes, he's my king. I love him. I follow him. I'm aligned with him. And are we willing to say we love Jesus even if it means the world hates us? Are we willing to accept the same treatment from the world that Jesus received? And we talked about betrayal. Betrayal is to align oneself with someone's enemies and work against them. And denial, which is what Peter does, is to refuse to make your alignment with Jesus public. Um, later on, we'll see Peter fully restored. Um, Jesus knows that Peter loves him, but at that moment, he caved under the pressure of the hate of the world. And so denial is to refuse to make your alignment with Jesus public. We deny Jesus when we want the world's love more than Jesus's. We deny Jesus when we see the world and the ruler of the world as bigger than Jesus. Sometimes we see everything the world can bring against us or other, everything other people can do to us or say about us or think about us. That's all feels so big and Jesus feels so small and so distant. And so those people are the ones that I care about the most. They loom large and Jesus seems so small. We shrink back. We hide our love of Jesus. We keep our allegiance to Jesus private. We keep our Jesus beliefs and our Jesus values that don't align with the world's beliefs and values hidden and to ourselves. And we don't want people to ridicule us. We don't want people to dislike us. We don't want people to, we don't want to get fired. We don't want to, be, we don't want to offend. We don't want to lose friendships. We don't want to be annoying. We don't want to be rejected. We don't want to be called old-fashioned or bigoted or narrow or hateful or exclusive. We want the world to love us and not hate us. So take some time and let this, what happens to Peter, how he caves, uh, I believe Peter has a real love for Jesus. John 21, we're going to see Jesus ask him three times, deny him three times. He's going to ask him three times, Peter, do you love me? Every time he says, yes, Jesus, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. 
Peter, do you love me? Yes, Jesus, I love you. He gives him this opportunity to be restored, to express his love. He knows he caved under the hate. And so take some time to reflect on this question. Who are you hiding your beliefs and values from in order to have their love and acceptance? Who are you hiding your beliefs and values from in order to have their love and acceptance? Take some time to silently reflect. good news is this. Jesus is the king we all need to reconnect us with the God we've all denied. Because we all struggle at times to make our beliefs, our values that God gives us public, to make our allegiance to him public. And Jesus is the king we all need to reconnect us with the God we've all denied. And Jesus died for deniers. From the residence of Caiaphas, the high priest, Jesus is escorted to Pontius Pilate, who was the Roman governor over that region. Um, so he's you know, this Roman official who's making sure that specific region is staying in line and laws are being followed and riots aren't happening. And Jews, Jewish people from all over the country um, would have journeyed to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And so the place is just packed, you know, like over... over to, I mean, like, it's kind of like when Fair Diddley or, it doesn't happen here much, or Groundhog Day. Like all these people just come and the town's population swells. And so Jewish, I mean, Jewish Passover was a week long. It started on a Thursday and then went for a whole other week festival um, right after that. And so a lot of people, and so Pilate, who normally wasn't staying in Jerusalem, is there at this time because he's like, this is, you know, this is a recipe for things to get out of control. And so he's there to make sure that everything stays in order. And some people, you may hear, I don't know, you on documentaries on PBS or wherever, that people say that the way Pilate is portrayed here is historically inaccurate. And so people will say, like, this is not anything like how any other document in history describes Pilate. And so either Christians made this up um, or they just got it completely wrong. Either way, it shows you can't really trust the Bible because then what other stories are made up or what other stories or other things that they get wrong um, but they, they say that Pilate's behavior here is out of sync with what we hear of him in other historical documents, which proves the Bible can't be trusted. And that claim shows a surface-level understanding of Pilate and a surface-level understanding of human nature. Uh, Pilate actually acts in sync with this character here and with history here. And so this, is, this just sheds more light on like what would it look like for Pilate, as he's described in other historical documents, to interact with these Jewish people. And Pilate, what we know from other documents, he was quite stubborn, and he was brutal with his, in his dealings with the Jews. And he also had a weak moral character. Um, and all these things made the Jewish people not like him very much. I mean, he's dealing with them brutally and stubbornly, and he's got a weak moral character. They care a lot about righteousness and justice and following what God says. And as they come uh, to him, um, we can see some of this character coming out. And Pilate... Even though he's stubborn and brutal, he's also a man under authority. And he answered to the emperor of the Roman Empire, the Caesar. And the Jews under his governance had already sent complaints to Emperor Tiberius about 
how he was being so harsh and brutal with them. And so Emperor Tiberius was a man who he didn't he didn't take that's not gonna he's not gonna be like, okay, you know, pilot, let's have a little developmental conversation. He's gonna be like, Pilot, you're gone and you, you might even be dead. And so he's in this position where he's like he doesn't like these people he's dealing with. And he has an emperor over him who's like, you need to deal well with these people or I'm going to be mad with you and it could be your life or your position or whatever it is. And so he's in this situation um, there. So he's trying to keep the Jewish people happy so he doesn't get in trouble with the emperor. And as he's doing that, he's making these subtle little jabs at them, showing how he doesn't like them. So Pilate would have already known something of their plans because Roman soldiers were sent to help uh, them arrest Jesus. And so he already knows something's about, but he makes them restate their case, which is like, Okay, what's this man here for? It's like, well, don't you already know you have had some soldiers help us? So it's already like, he's kind of like making this part there. Like, oh, well, yeah, I want you to tell it all to me again. And he simply won't be a pawn in their plans. And when they assure him that Jesus has done wrong, he says, well, go judge him by your own law. Like, you can go, you can go take care of this. Um, he already has suspicions of what they're, they're, they're about because we, he tells them, says it later. But he knows that they need him for something. And so by telling them, well, go judge him by your law, it makes them show, well, well, no, we can't judge him by our own law because we can't put someone to death. It's not lawful. So he makes them, oh, oh, so you need me to, to do this for you. Like it's a, a way of asserting his authority over them. And so he's giving these little jabs at him. So Pilate then goes into his headquarters. He's like, okay, that's what they want. Let me go in here and talk with Jesus. He walks, goes back, talks with Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? So he knows this is what they're upset about. They, this guy, this guy's claiming to be the king of the Jews. And here he is, like, take care of him. We want him put to death. Um, because in Pilate's world, somebody claiming to be the king of the Jews, uh, no, that's not how this works. The emperor is the king of the Jews. And the emperor will appoint people to, to be governing this area. And there's not just going to be some dude from Nazareth coming up and saying, like, I'm the king of the Jews and now I'm going to rule these people. No, that's called uh, treason. And so Jesus asks him, well, is this your confession that I'm king of the Jews or someone else's? And this is the charge that the chief priests have brought to Pilate. And uh, he doesn't care about their religious squabblings, but he would care about somebody trying to create a rebellion and an uprising. I'm king of the Jews. Let's overthrow these, you know, Pontius Pilate and anybody else who's over, over us. Let's go make this happen. And Pilate answers, answers am I a Jew? You know, Jesus is asking, is this your confession? He's like, well, am I a Jew? Your own nation, your chief priest has delivered over to me. What have you done? Um, so he's like, well, I, don't care. I don't care if you're, you know, about what you guys are talking about. I just want to know, uh, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus' answer, how he answers and pulls back the curtain on what he sees is happening in this whole situation. It's like, oh, here's just Jesus going to trial, talking to this Roman governor. And Jesus kind of pulls back the curtain. No, here's the spiritual realities of what's happening here. So look at Chapter 18, verses 36 to 37. Jesus said, answered him, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. My kingdom is not from the world. And Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth, listens to my voice. And I think this verse is a key to understanding everything else that's going on here. And that's where, why I wrote this big idea, um, how it is, of like, he's, right here, he's like, this is what's really going on here, Pilate. My kingdom isn't of this world. That's the only reason this is happening. Um, but I have come to bear witness. This is my purpose. I'm coming to bear witness to the truth. 
that I really am a king. I really am the son of God. I really have come. Um, and he's also, as he's bearing witness to the truth, he reveals our need for God as he does so. And Jesus is a king, but his kingdom is not of this world. It's not like any kingdom that Pilate is thinking of. It's a heavenly kingdom. It's a godly kingdom. And that means it works different than the world's kings. It works much different than Pilate and the emperor's kingdom works. It doesn't expand by violence or war or brutality or fear. It runs on love. God so loved the world that he sent a king to set up his kingdom. And Jesus is the king about to show the love of that kingdom by giving his life for the very people who are rejecting this king, the very people who deny him and have betrayed him. Jesus states his purpose. For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. And the truth is that God so loved the world, he sent his son, so that whoever trusts in him will be reconnected with God and not perish. Jesus testifies to the truth that he is the truth of our God, that I am the life, that I'm the one who dispenses the, the life, eternal life of God, and I am the way to God. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus bears witness to the truth. He doesn't even have to say anything, really, but he bears witness to the truth by just being who he is, because he is the truth. He doesn't have to say something in order for the truth to be out there. He is the truth. When people see him, that's him bearing witness to it. And it's kind of like a flashlight walking into a dark room. Simply by being there, you know that it's there. You know that it's light. Simply by being there, you see that Jesus is light. And you see also that he exposes what was hidden in the darkness. And so there's that diagnosis thing we were talking about before. By encountering Jesus, people are both seeing the light and they're saying, oh, there's the truth. There's the way, the truth and the life. I'm seeing it. At the same time, it's shedding this light. on. It's diagnosing them and showing this is how mess, a mess you are. This is how much you need what I'm talking about. And he does both of those things. And the world is a mess. The religious leaders are a mess. Judas is a mess. Peter is a mess. Pilate is a mess. And all our lives are a mess. And simply by showing up, Jesus shines a light on that mess. He brings to light what is hidden in our hearts. And all these people, Judas, brings to light what was hidden in his heart. You know, he, could, he seems like this guy, he's been next to Jesus this whole time. Seems like he's a pretty godly dude. Like he's, pretty, he's committed to Jesus. But then when the pressure comes on, it brings, you know, as the pressure moment comes, it shows what is really in Jesus' heart. And then Peter, uh, he's, you know, he's been the guy that's bold. I'll stand with you with anything, Jesus. And then it shows how much he's scared of the hate of the world. And then Pilate as well, and the Jews. And Jesus says to Pilate, everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. And so is Pilate going to listen to his voice? Well, Pilate tries to stay neutral. What is the truth, he says. The truth is standing right in front of him, and he doesn't recognize it. It's like he's saying, well, you have your truth, Jesus. I have my truth. The Jews out there have their truth. The emperor has his truth. We all have our truth. What is the truth, Jesus? Pilate tries to not take a side, but there's no neutral when it comes to Jesus. Jesus calls people out of the world. He calls people in a world that's resisting and opposing and rejecting God. And he says, you can be either being in that or you can be in my kingdom. And there's either loved by the world or loved by me, hated by the world or rejected by me. You're either in the world or in Jesus' kingdom. And so a question we can ask ourselves, have, have you tried to stay neutral with Jesus? And there's a way of engaging Jesus where we keep him outside of us, where we remain the authority over our own lives. And so Pilate, he doesn't say like, well, I'm seeing that you're the truth. He's just, he, he kind of deflects. It's like, well, what is, what is truth? And so Jesus stays out here, and Pilate stays here, and the, what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is doing, um, is 
just kind of coming in, he's giving it a filter and be like, okay, I'll take that under advisement. Maybe I'll think about it. That was interesting or whatever. And when we hear the Bible, we, run it, we can run it through our own filters and see if it agrees with what we want or what we'd like to do. And we take God's words to us as advice, and then we weigh it and consider it. Yeah, like, oh, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll put that into practice this week. When we hear God's word, God's truth, our response should be, yes, I believe it, I trust you, I want to do this. And so often we're like, well, oh, you know, I, I'm just struggling. We, we struggle to believe it. We struggle to obey it instead of saying to God, yes, that's the truth. What comes out of your mouth is truth. You are the truth. I want to do it. I believe it. I'm going to obey you. Instead, we wonder, is it really true? We hesitate to do what God commands, and we drag our feet. We hear God say, you know, do this. And then we're like, well, I'm sad because I, that would mean I would lose this, and I'd lose that, and it's inconvenient. And we, we drag our feet. And Pilate tries to have Jesus release, but the Jews refuse. And Pilate's trying to have this neutral position of like, I don't really want to take a side with you. I, just, I hear what you're saying. Sure. Um, and he just tries to stay neutral. And the Jews, he tries to release Jesus, but Pilate has him flogged, and there's three different levels of flogging. Um, this first one was probably the, the weakest level of like, oh, this is kind of somebody that was like a little rabble rouser. It's like, okay, it's not a slap on the wrist because flogging is way more than a slap on the wrist. But, you know, it's kind of like, okay, uh, you graffiti the wall, you know, don't do that again, move along. It doesn't quite got into the huge level of flogging you see in like the Passion of Christ. Um, and Pilate thinks these charges are bogus, but he still hasn't punished. He's trying to satisfy the Jewish people. He's like, I don't think there's any guilt in this guy. And try to satisfy him. So they put this crown of thorns on him, purple robe, they mock him, and then Pilate presents him to the crowd. He says, there's no charges, but here he is. He's gotten whipped. And then they start calling for Pilate, crucify him, crucify Jesus. This was the punishment for rebels against Rome. Put him on a stake, put a little placard on top of it that says their crime. So everyone walks by it, would have probably been like this tall, um, not like super tall, like we often see it, but probably like this tall, like slightly above, above us. So everyone that comes by can read that little plaque and be like, Oh, this guy uh, was a rebel against Rome. Wow, he looks pretty bad. I don't want to end up in that position, and so I'm not going to rebel against Rome. I'm going to stay in line. And so they're trying to say, um, Jesus is a re- guilty of being a rebel, and Pilate says, no, he's not. Um, and then they're like, well, he made himself to be the son of God, and that kind of gets Pilate's attention. It doesn't mean the same thing to him as it would have meant to them. For him, in his, he has this category for special people that kind of have been endowed with divine abilities and so he's like what a son of god and i just had him whipped so he comes brings him back into his headquarters talks to him again and is like where are you from you know like where you're son of god like a, this divine dude like that's kind of like human but has divine powers and jesus doesn't answer him he gets upset don't you know i have authority to release you or crucify you and jesus knows better he says you would have no authority over me unless it was given from above therefore he who delivered me over to you has the greater sin and Jesus is saying, Pilate, you're trying to stay neutral here, but you have blood in your hands. You're sinful here. But the people that have the greater sin are Judas who betrayed me, and the chief priests and these religious leaders who delivered me over to you. Um, but none of this, Jesus says, is outside of God's authority. None of it is outside of God's control. God isn't saying like, uh-oh, I sent Jesus to fix all that stuff, and now, whoopsie, you know, everything is going wrong down there. But God is in control, and Jesus keeps quoting Scripture, and and they, the, John keeps quoting scripture, this was to fill this, this was to fill that. And Pilate attempts to release him, but it's no use. The chief priests start to get political, and they say, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Caesar. And Pilate asks, Should I, shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answer, we have no king but Caesar. 
And finally, Pilate delivers Jesus to be crucified as a rebel. In order to get rid of Jesus, who really is their king, the chief priests deny their kingship of God over them. We have no king but Caesar. You know, they're making these political moves and not even saying, we're not looking forward to Messiah. You know, God, we trust God. They're, they're just throwing all that out. They just want to get this guy out of the picture. And so Pilate, we see Pilate trying to stay neutral. But we can't stay neutral with Jesus. And he is a person who divides us. We either love or hate him. perhaps the scariest people of all in this whole situation are the religious leaders. I mean, in every scene, they've been the ones uh, pressuring and pushing for Jesus' death. They're the ones moving it forward, and they're completely walking in darkness. And what's scary about that is that they have, they have no idea. Judas knows he's done wrong. He actually ends up hanging himself. Peter knows he's done wrong. He weeps over it, we're told in Luke's Gospel. Pilate bends to other people instead of doing his right, but he knows that he's condemned an innocent man. But the religious leaders truly believe that this innocent man is guilty. In the name of God, the religious leaders rejected the Son of God. They rejected the Son of God for the sake of protecting God's honor. God himself, the very God whom they claimed to worship and serve, came to visit them, and he wasn't welcome. The God who that they read about in these scriptures, that they do all these rituals for and lead other people in, he came to visit, and they didn't even see him as that God. Their life was filled with God stuff, God talk, God activities, God holidays, God worship services, and yet, when God actually showed up, they didn't recognize him. Their way of worshiping and serving God had no room for God in it. And they're God's people, but they become the world that hates him. God showed up, and now who represents the world in the fiercest way? Who rejects God and denies God and betrays God in the fiercest way? It's God's people, the people that are called God's people. The chief priests, the people who are supposed to represent him, do his work and first recognize the truth are the ones who pay Judas to betray Jesus, whom Peter is afraid of, and who pressure Pilate. The religious leaders thought they were offering service to God by killing Jesus but it was the furthest from the truth. The religious leaders thought that they were doing what is right by rejecting Jesus and having him killed. And that's scary because they're the ones who we are most likely to be. We're the most likely to act like them. We can busy ourselves with religious activity and yet have hearts far from God. We can study the Bible until we're filled with more knowledge than anybody and yet have hearts far from God. And so here's the question. Is God welcome in your life? Well, actually, it's three questions. You don't have to write them down. But is God welcome in your life? Is there room in your spiritual life for God? I know these sound like ridiculous questions. Well, of course. Of course there's room in my spiritual life for God. That's who it's all about. And these men who orchestrated Jesus' death, God came to them they rejected him because there wasn't room in their spiritual life for God. And yet they were doing all the right things. If God asked you to reorient and reorganize your life, would you do it? We have to ask those questions because if we're not willing to say yes to God, if he came into our life and actually wanted to shake things up, then we have a problem in the way that we're worshiping him and claiming to worship him. We can make a relationship with God about putting activities on our calendar or doing certain rituals and think those are pleasing. But we cannot fit God into a convenient religious time slot. 
God's not satisfied with getting an hour from us on Sundays or getting a moment from us when we pray before a meal or before bed. He wants all of us, and he wants to move into our lives and have him be what defines everything about us. And God is bigger than our spiritual rituals. He's bigger than our special holidays. The religious leaders were honoring God with their heads and their hands, but their hearts were far from him. They were religiously close, but relationally far from God. So that's where what we need to be careful of is that even as we come celebrate Easter, Palm Sunday and Good Friday, and we get excited about all this stuff, and as we come and gather on Sundays and we start, you know, filling, you know, like I get more and more uh, committed to church things, we need to make sure like that commitment is actually flowing from our commitment to God. And that as a church, even, you know, there's individuals, but as a church, we just talked, and we just had this meeting where we're talking about our plans, and it's like, do, does our life become all about doing all this stuff for God? And if God came in and was like, no, I'd actually like you to do this, what would we do? <coughs> no, 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 get out of here. Like, we have our thing going on here, and that's what the religious leaders do, and we can do that as a group. We can do that in our own individual lives. We need to be careful that we aren't squeezing God into boxes and rituals and routines that are so comfortable that we have no real experience of God and if he showed up, we reject him because he's messing up everything we have going on for him, that we think is for him. As we looked at all this, we talked about how what looks like defeat is actually victory. And across this whole passage, we see Jesus bringing up scripture, Jesus saying, I'm, this is the plan of God, I'm trusting. And he just has this steadiness, this stableness of, you know, Pilate questioning him, it's like, my kingdom's not of this world. And he, he just sees it all coming, and he uh, says in this, uh, what Brian just read, it is finished. The plan is finished. The plan God gave me to accomplish, it is finished. I've, I've given my life. And what's ironic is that the people who run the ta- temple sacrifices, these priests and religious leaders, they actually call for the sacrifice of the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Crucify him! And they're actually calling for the Lamb of God to be sacrificed for the sins of the world. The people who deny Jesus as king are actually the ones who enthrone him on the cross. Because Jesus talked about all of the, the crosses. This is my moment of being lifted up. This is my moment of being glorified. This is when I am most clearly representing the love of God for the world. And that's what proves that I'm actually the king that he sent. And so even as they're actually trying to defeat God, what's happening is they're sacrificing the Lamb of God for the sins of the world. And they're enthroning um, the, the king on his throne. As we move, we'll do our final scripture reading, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper uh, that, remi- that uh, reminds us of Jesus' death. So I invite Larry up to do our final scripture reading for us. Uh, the final reading begins.